Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can analyze the Shanna Goliar murder case. So first I'll look at the background, then the timeline of the crime and the investigation, and then I'll move to my analysis. David Krupa moved to Omaha, Nebraska in 2012 to manage an auto repair shop. He had recently broken up with his girlfriend, Amy Flora, and was looking to date again. He signed up for a dating site. Shanna Golier was the first person he met on that site. She also went by the name Liz. He said that she was very pretty and he was attracted to her right away. He told her that he wanted to see other women, so he didn't want to create an expectation that they were exclusive. As it turns out, of course, Golier would be bad news. I guess he forgot to check the No Homicidal Stalker checkbox. I will never understand why this isn't checked by default in these dating apps. 37-year-old Carrie Farver brought her Ford Explorer into the shop that Krupa managed. He said there was a little spark between the two of them. Their relationship got off to a fast start. The couple went to Krupa's apartment after dinner on the first date. Farver told Krupa she didn't want anything serious. He would later say that he felt like he hit the jackpot. When Farver was leaving his apartment, she passed Golier in the hallway. Golier had been there to pick up a few things from Krupa's apartment. Farver ended up temporarily moving in to Krupa's apartment because it was closer to where she worked. Now moving to the timeline of the crime and the investigation. On the morning of November 13, 2012, Krupa kissed Farver on his way out the door. He told her he would see her later that evening. Not long after this, he received a text message from her phone, which stated that she wanted to move in together. The couple had already discussed that they were not going to do that. Krupa answered the text and said he was not interested. The next message from Farver's phone came quickly, saying, Fine. I hate you, I'm dating someone else, and I don't want to see you anymore. Go away. Krupa came home that night and found that Farver was not there. Two days later, he received more texts with the same type of language. Carrie Farver's mother, Nancy Rainey, started receiving text messages from Farver's phone as well, stating that Farver had found a new job in Kansas. Messages were also sent to Farver's employer and son, 
we see that there were text messages, emails, and Facebook messages. Rainey tried to call Farver's phone, but there was no answer. After this, she called the police, and they started investigating the disappearance. As this was going on, Krupa kept receiving messages. Many of the messages were threatening and had an angry tone. The majority of the messages mentioned Goliar. Goliar contacted Krupa and said she was receiving messages from Farver as well. She said her garage had been spray-painted with a threatening message, and she went so far as to report that to the police. Krupa and Goliar started dating again. A lot of key events in Farver's life were coming and going, like her birthday, and she wasn't there. This raised concerns about what happened to her. Rainey continued getting messages. Many of them had poor grammar, which was inconsistent with Farver's behavior. In addition to messages, Krupa believed that he was being stalked. One time he was sitting in his chair watching TV at night and received a text message that accurately described how he was sitting and what he was wearing. In January of 2013, Krupa found Farver's Ford Explorer in a nearby parking lot. He called the police and they searched the vehicle. They only found one fingerprint. It was on a mint container, but the fingerprint was not in the FBI database. A man called Rainey about five months after Farver's disappearance, saying that Farver was at a homeless shelter. Rainey drove there, but could not find her daughter. Farver's son sent a message to Farver's Facebook account with questions designed to figure out if the person leaving the messages was really Farver. Like, what was his middle name? There was no response. Sometimes Krupa and Goyar would receive messages when they were together. So this made Krupa think that Goyar could not be in on it. In August of 2013, there was a fire at Goyar's house, which killed her cat, snake, and two dogs. After this, Krupa bought a pistol. It was a 9mm Smith & Wesson. Amy Flora, the ex-girlfriend I mentioned before, the mother of Krupa's two children, also received threatening messages, ostensibly, from Farver. The stalking continued. Krupa said that one night when he was with another woman, someone shook the front door handle of his apartment and threw a brick through the window. His place of employment was also vandalized. This takes us to 2015. Farver has not been found, and the police are no closer to finding out who is sending the messages. They weren't sure if Farver was alive or dead. New detectives were assigned to the case. They reviewed the old case files and found a few things that stood out. Even though Farver was supposedly sending messages, there was no activity on her checking account. No one actually heard Farver's voice, and there were no credible sightings. They were perplexed as to why Farver would have such an interest in Goliar. The police believed the two had only come in contact just one time for about 10 seconds. All the people being harassed agreed to provide their phone data to the police. They started going through the messages. Over the course of three years, there were somewhere between 25 and 50,000 messages total. The police found some interesting items in the data download from Goyer's phone. She had taken a picture of Farver's Ford Explorer a month before it was discovered by Krupa. Goyer had called Farver six times using star 67 to hide her number, so she was calling her prior to her disappearance. They found a photo of a woman who'd been tied up. The same photo had been emailed to Krupa. It had been taken with Goliar's phone. They had also found a video of someone walking outside Krupa's apartment. It had been uploaded to YouTube using Farver's account, but the IP address pointed back to Goliar's 
residence. The police met with Rainey, who told them that right after Farver disappeared, a text message came in saying that Farver had sold her furniture. It asked Rainey to let the buyer into Farver's house to pick up the items. Rainey received a proof of sale. It was a photograph of a check made out to Farver. It was signed by Shanna Goliar. The police were able to match the fingerprint found on the mint container to Goliar. Around this time, Krupa called the police and told them that his pistol was missing. At this point, the police received yet another break in the case. They ran into Goliar at the police station. She was there to file a complaint against Amy Flora. Goliar now claimed that Flora was harassing her. Using the complaint as a pretext, the investigators decided to interview Goliar. She now said that Flora must have been the one sending the messages, and she believed that Flora is the one who took Krupa's gun. Goliar even knew that the missing weapon was a 9mm Smith & Wesson. But when the investigators pressed on this point, she acted like she didn't really know much about the gun. She agreed to let investigators download data from her phone. Now, of course, she allowed that before, but that was much earlier in the investigation. So new data had accumulated on the phone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. The next day, Goliar called the police and claimed that she was shot when she was walking alone in the park. She said Flora must have done it. The police investigated and realized that Flora was not responsible for the shooting. The download from Goliar's phone revealed a lot of new information. Goliar had an app on her phone that allowed her to schedule when messages were sent this could explain how the messages arrived when she was with Krupa. She had between 20 and 30 fake email addresses. All of them used a variation of Farver's name. The investigators developed a plan to trick Goyar into giving them information about the murder. They told her that they needed her help to catch Flora, who of course they knew was innocent in this whole mess. They told Goyar to contact Flora and see if Flora would admit involvement. Goliar started sending emails pretending to be Flora. The emails contained details of the murder, including that Farver was stabbed three to four times and her body was put in a garbage bag. The police pressed for more information as Goliar became frustrated that Flora was not under arrest. She sent more emails saying the murder had taken place in Farver's car. The police searched the vehicle again. This time they found Farver's blood. They had searched it twice before and not found anything but that fingerprint. Goliar was arrested for first-degree murder on December 22, 
2016. In 2017, as both the prosecution and the defense were getting ready for trial, Krupa remembered that he had a tablet this whole time that contained a memory card that had once been in Goliar's phone. Among the thousands of deleted images the police were able to recover from that card, there was a photograph of a human foot with a tattoo that matched a tattoo that Farver had. Goliar was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for murder, plus sentenced to 18 to 20 years for arson. She continues to maintain that she is innocent. Now moving to the analysis. Goliar was not a particularly sophisticated criminal, but she was able to escape justice for such a long time due to a combination of circumstances. The crime didn't make any sense. Why would Goliar kill somebody she didn't know? Krupa dated 30 to 40 more women between the time that Farver disappeared and Goliar was arrested. Farver was the only one who disappeared. If the motive was jealousy, why only target one victim? Farver happened to have bipolar disorder. Even though police implied this didn't reduce their effort in the investigation, it seems likely they believed Farver had stopped her medication and her bipolar symptoms returned. Essentially, the bipolar disorder gave the police a reason not to take this case too seriously. If they understood bipolar disorder, they would have understood that it runs in cycles. So if mania explained why Farver was missing and why she was allegedly sending all these messages, then that activity would be limited. The messages would have stopped after the mania stopped. So the police may have used bipolar disorder as a reason not to investigate, but they never actually understood the disorder. Goyar managed to murder Farver and not be seen by anybody. Furthermore, the police somehow missed Farver's blood in her own vehicle, even after searching it twice. Goyar made herself into a convincing victim. She vandalized her own property, killed her own pets in a fire. She sent herself thousands of messages, and she shot herself in the leg. At the same time, this made Farver a suspect. Goyar was able to remove suspicion from herself and place it on her victim. As it turns out, this was an incredibly effective strategy. The police said that it took Goyar about 40 to 50 hours a week to send all those messages. So it was like an entirely separate full-time job for her. Krupa did not tell the police about the memory card until the trial was getting ready to start. It would have been helpful to have that information earlier. There were also several errors in logic that helped Goyar to get away for so long. For example, Krupa said he could not remember how many times he changed his phone number, yet the messages did not stop. It never occurred to the police to run an experiment to give Krupa a new phone number that no one else knew, and then have him reveal it to just one person and see if the messages start again. If Farver had been alive, how would she know what Krupa's new phone numbers were? I wonder if these officers went to the Frank Drebin School of Police Investigation. Jealousy as the motive for homicide is not uncommon, but the assumption of a victim's identity is what makes this case highly unusual. Sometimes what we see in murder cases is that the perpetrator will do something to throw off the police timeline, like send a text message from the victim's phone, making it seem as though the victim was alive during a time when the police theorized the victim was already dead. Goliar's efforts exceeded what was necessary to deflect suspicion in this way. She heavily invested in the idea of assuming Farver's identity and then turned that identity into a weapon so she could express her rage. She channeled her dark side through this identity unrestricted by the law or common sense. 
Farver's identity became like a ghost, manipulated by Goyar. It was without form. It could not be seen. It could not be captured. Goliar was able to harass all these people and remain undetected. It was a way that Goliar could say anything she wanted. Goliar was not satisfied with simply killing Farver. She wanted to destroy Farver and anyone who was close to Farver. She wanted everyone who knew Farver to regret ever being associated with her. This was an attempt at complete domination. Another angle in this case is possessiveness. Goliar thought she could restore this relationship with Krupa by eliminating the competition. As it turns out, though, Krupa simply dated too many women for Goliar to have kept up. She couldn't have killed all those women, so she took Farver's identity and, again, weaponized it. Goliar was trying to find romance by playing the victim, a desperate strategy that is rarely successful. What really stands out as not making sense is that at some point, Goliar had to realize that she wasn't going to be with Krupa, yet she continued to send the messages. She also tried to frame an innocent person, Amy Flora. It's like she just couldn't let it go. It was almost as if there was something addictive about being a victim. It took appearing like a victim even more to get the same high. Again, she moved to arson and then shooting herself when she could have just walked away after committing the homicide. It's unlikely she ever would have been arrested. Goliar's lack of empathy extended to her lack of understanding of what was reasonable for other people to believe. For example, by trying to refocus the blame on Amy Flora, Goliar really made the theory of the crime unnecessarily complex and attracted suspicion. I was waiting for her to say that Flora was really Farver in a disguise, like a Scooby-Doo episode. Goliar did not understand how other people viewed her claims. What type of personality is consistent with this behavior? Here we see a dangerous combination of traits. Goliar was a business owner. She seemed to function well in society in many ways. People who knew her didn't seem to notice anything unusual. It's not like she stood out as psychopathic or detached from reality. At the same time, she was able to murder a woman and assume her identity. With that in mind, her potential personality profile would be something like this. High in openness to experience, she was creative, she wrote all those messages. We see mostly high conscientiousness, she was organized enough to commit murder and not be caught. We see she was extroverted, she was outgoing, assertive, and sensation-seeking. She may have had low agreeableness, she was not empathic and not straightforward. And we see mid-range to high neuroticism, she was unable to resist temptation and angry. Some have theorized that Goliar may have had something like psychopathy. For example, we see that she was manipulative, there was pathological lying, she was able to lie for years, and really she still maintains that even in prison. We see a failure to accept responsibility, she still has not admitted guilt, and of course the callousness, not only indicated by Farver's murder, but the idea that Goliar killed her own pets. So we see that psychopathy could be a possibility, she also could have been narcissistic, she believed she was entitled to kill and harass. I think what's so frightening about this case is that before the homicide, Goyer and Farver only saw each other one time for about 10 seconds, as I mentioned. It's hard to imagine that a person like Goyer, who appears unremarkable, she didn't stand out for any negative reason, could take that encounter as an impetus for homicide and years of deception. The lesson learned in this case, don't underestimate the power of jealousy to unlock 
the hidden potential for destruction. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal.